Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello, good evening. Is everybody who's coming in, have they managed to get in? And I hope you can find a seat or somewhere comfortable to stand. We do pride ourselves and Word in Your Ear evenings, though we, we start on time and we finish on time. We did one with Danny Baker not long ago, where Danny was sitting here about five minutes early, and he wouldn't even wait for it to start, would he? He just started straight oh, away. No, really. About half an hour, well, yeah. whatever. And we just had to turn up the recording, didn't we? And, uh, yeah. Okay, well, welcome to this special Bob Dylan uh, podcast recording uh, at the Islington. Uh, it is, as you're no doubt aware, uh, it's, it's 50 years since Subterranean Homesick Blues came out, or was recorded, was recorded probably. And, and it's 40 years since Blood on the Tracks came out. Okay, it's 30 years since Bob Dylan recorded his part, his unforgettable part, on We Are the World (laughs) by USA for Africa. Okay, it is, uh, I'm losing it right, it's 20 years since he released MTV Unplugged. I think you were there, weren't you? Uh, It's 10 years since No Direction Home, the retrospective, uh, you know, film. And it is today that this record, his latest record, and I don't even know what number it is on his catalogue, it's about 40-some, isn't it, is, uh, is released, Shadows in the Night. So we thought, that's as good a bunch of reasons as any <laughs> to do what we always used to enjoy doing in the Word office for hours on end, which is talking about Bob Dylan, didn't we? Talking about Bob Dylan and the Beatles. Endlessly we never, never got fed up of it. Yeah. Absolutely never got... It's the only thing Mark and I miss about each other is being able to talk about Bob Dylan occasionally. <laughs> so we thought we'd do it here and get some people who know slightly more about Bob Dylan or got a very particular angle on Bob Dylan to, to join us. And, uh, and, and the, the first one, if I can just start introducing them... Um, a bit of a visual aid there. Uh, Barbie Younger. Uh, Barb is a, a well-known, acclaimed interpreter of all kinds of people's music. Uh, 
You know, we're talking about the likes of, I don't know, you've done Joni Mitchell, you've done... Have you ever done Cole Porter and all that kind of thing? You've never done that. You no. don't... Go on, give, give it Tom Waits you've done. No, no. You've never done Tom Waits. Only one Tom Waits. Only one Tom Waits. One Tom Waits, yeah. okay. But you've made a bit of a specialism of, of, of uh, recording uh, your interpretations of the songs of Bob Dylan. Yeah. You've made two or three albums, at least. Three now, yeah. Three albums. And this is the most recent one, Hard Rain, which is... Uh, Bob Dylan, songs of Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen. When I contacted you a couple of weeks ago to ask if you could do this, you were in New York. Yeah. You get about, don't you? What were you doing in New York? Oh, I was uh, singing at 54 Below, and it was the big APAP conference, and all the managers and every every musician that's alive in the New York area is is in the Hilton showcasing. And and I directed somebody else's show about Billy Joel. Uh, I worked a bit with Lawrence Hobgood, worked a bit with John McDaniel, came home. So, this is you know this is all part of your you know, the rich tapestry of your of your life is yeah. you know this particular evening. Okay, and moving on to the gentleman to to your right. Hey, let me introduce Sid. Can I? Sid was you know Sid. Sid was the um, leader of the uh, Long Riders and the leader of the Cole Porters, and has written some stupendous books about um, uh, Graham Parsons and I think two about Bob Dylan. One of which is here, probably available tonight for purchase. I hope. Funny so, enough, just updated. <laughs> funnily enough, by extraordinary synchronicity, you can buy by the way. And uh, there was a review of it which I read today, which describes Sid as Aesop. He was an Aesop meets Rabelais storyteller. Which I thought was fantastic praise. So please welcome, yes, Bob and Sid Griffin. So, so we tried to give this a little bit of a structure. You'll be amazed. So it's <laughs> slightly more complicated than our normal talks in the office. And we want to start by by asking everybody if they can remember uh, how and when they first heard Bob, D- Bob Dylan. Bob, can you remember? Yeah, because well, there were lots of times I heard Bob Dylan, but it just went like that, because I was not of that sort of period where Bob Dylan was the thing that you went for and grabbed and stayed with. I'd missed that. It was Tamla Motown, you see, for me, and Northern Soul. And so it was a long time before Bob Dylan actually whacked me around the head, and it was Blind William McTell. And Blind Willie McTell was on, if you remember, that huge box set that came out. And my mother-in-law at that time was had a big birthday and we bought it for her. And she was one of those people who had the stereo in another room. So you would have the stereo on in another room but all the doors open. It was a cunning way of listening to music. And she put it on in the other room. And, uh, and we had it. it, was, it was, and suddenly I, I heard, I heard Blind Willie McTell and I couldn't get it out of my head. And so that set me off on a sort of chain of events that, so that was the ended first up here, time. really. That yeah. was the first time. So that was quite late in his career, wasn't it, that you, yeah. you came across him? Yeah. So you had to do all the rest. You had to go back to the start, did you? I had you? to go back, and I have, I've become one of, like one of those people who gives up smoking but who finds Bob Dylan. <laughs> right. That's what I've become. I've become a Bob Dylan is a genius person. I'll fight anybody who says he is. <laughs> what about you, Sid? Can you remember? The first time I heard Bob Dylan would have been through Peter, Paul, and Mary, which I know, strictly speaking, doesn't answer the question. But they did marvelous versions of Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, and Blowing in the Wind. And like a lot of people, I had a sibling and cousins who played the Dylan records, and I would have, I would have blocked them out. So I can't remember the time and place I heard them, because he was harsh. He's, he's grating, and I can tell you sort of why he deliberately is that way. But... 
I got in through Peter, Paul, and Mary, and the second, the first time I really clocked who he was, and they had some import, was because Mad Magazine had a uh, feature, you know, preparing current American figures in 1964, and they made fun of a guy called Bob Dilly. And as I looked at this pen and ink drawing of Bob Dilly, this unkempt, I think he had flies around him, and it was in the Woody Guthrie period of Dylan's life. And he's unkempt, and he's wearing sandals, which I don't really remember Dylan being a sandals guy. I clocked that this was the same guy and as Bob Dylan, this Bob Dylan they're making fun of. And then if Mad Magazine, which I revered at the time, was making fun of this figure, then he must be worth investigating. So in that roundabout way, I got into Bob Dylan. Loads of people do that nowadays via The Simpsons. True. I don't know if True. anybody's got teenage children or whatever who discover Gilbert and Sullivan or Shakespeare yeah. or whatever <laughs> via, yeah. via a Simpsons parody. Yeah. And, you know, years later they, they get the real thing. Can you remember the first one? Well, you know, very simply, I think it was probably much the same as... Uh, Sid and I are roughly the same. I think I'm about two years older than you. But I think it's probably Peter, Paul and Mary. And, and also I've got three older sisters and uh, hearing them playing... Bob Dylan was just more ammunition to annoy my parents, really, who detested the Rolling Stones and detested the Beatles and detested all pop music, and uh, um, which made it really good fun and really entertaining to like these people and to try and impersonate them. And so I would have been about... I think it's freewheeling Bob Dylan was the first one I remember. When I was 10 when I came out. And I remember learning some of the chords and having a little harmonica on a, on a bent coat hanger and wheezing away in the bathroom trying to play these songs, because that's what everyone tried to do. And it had an electrifying effect on my parents. Just yeah. My father... Just howling, shouting with rage. So that really spurred me on to really to acquire his entire catalogue after that. I first heard Bob Dylan at school, which doesn't seem right, really. But you know, I'd, I'd, I'd heard the songs done by Peter Paul and Mary, you know, because they, they they were plugged very successfully, weren't they, to to prominent performers? And so people would turn up on Sunday night at the London Palladium singing "Blowing in the Wind," you know, and you're aware that this was by this guy called Bob Dylan. You saw his name, Bob Dylan, and I never heard anybody say the words Bob Dylan aloud. And so when the folk club at school announced that they were having a recital of records by, I assumed it was Bob Dylan. <laughs> the shame. We knew nothing about Dylan Thomas either, you know. Yeah. Right. Uh, and we went down there and then, you know, we're in the sixth form common room while uh, August sixth form played as, you know, uh, times they are changing on another side of Bob Dylan. And, I, I, you know, I do think people overstate the, the kind of their musical epiphanies, you know, when they, uh, my life was changed by whatever, the buzzcocks. <laughs> but <laughs> and I don't think Bob Dylan changed my life. I don't want my life changed by any musician, thank you. But uh, they, it was electrifying, just the sound of it. Yeah. And I was reminded of this when I was getting ready for this t- this evening. I watched just the end of Inside Lewin Davis, the Coen Brothers. Yeah film, which I'm sure many people in this room have seen, where they brilliantly weave in the real Bob Dylan. In silhouette, isn't it? At the end of it. And Lewin Davis is this, you know, plodding, (laughs) you know, never going to make it guy, charmless and, you know, just competent, but nothing more. And suddenly at the end, you get this extraordinary sound of somebody who seems as if they know all the secrets of the world, you know. And he was, whatever. how old was he when he made that recording? Because that that's a very early, he was probably about 20 or something 20. like that. Yeah, he was, that, he, he was about 20. He was really young. And, uh, 
you know, this is what interests me. You know, when you relate to this, I don't know if you've heard any of this. I've heard some of it. I've, I'm loving it. I think it's great. And I think it's really interesting because it suddenly sets up a whole chain of events around what Dylan does that, that challenge everything you know. And, you know, in the way that he did with the Christmas album, which I, which I thought was both hilarious and wonderful simultaneously. <laughs> and I think this is the same. And I loved it. I read somewhere um, what he said about it and talking about uh, singing these songs as though they were his. And I thought it's the thing that people have always said nobody else can do with his songs. And he's taken that just like a piece of mud and thrown it back at the whole world. I thought it was really fabulous. This may be the interesting how, how respectful is with those tunes because this is a whole I don't know if you've heard it yet it's a whole set of uh, song ten songs that were in the uh, Frank Sinatra repertoire and he sings them so faithfully yeah. he sings them absolutely note for note in tune with enormous respect and you think how monstrously disrespectful he is about his own material yeah. where well, you can't even recognise it nor can members of the band playing it actually yeah, and it so it's quite he, nice to hear that he can sing he really oh, yeah, can yeah. sing you know yeah. all of those things so this is how he chose to launch his record yeah, you know, he, I don't know if any of you are subscribers to the American Association of Retired Peoples. <laughs> yeah. Is that what it sounds it's stands ma- for? It's a magazine about age concern, <laughs> yes. isn't it? It's saga, basically. <laughs> it's saga. It's like giving away, away 50,000 copies of the record with effectively with the equivalent yeah. of saga. And yeah. I think this is the most wonderful unconscious, uh, you know, uh, placement of this cover line. Can this career be saved? <laughs> I think he's done all right, thank you very much. I think he'd outlive the American Association of Retired People, you know. But it is just extraordinary, isn't it, to think that, that you know, that's, and going back over those anniversaries, you know, it's 50 years since he went electric, that we're still sitting here talking about this guy. Yeah. And he's, he's launched his record you know, via the uh, the magazine for the retired people of America. But that's what's so great about him, is because he, he really has allowed himself to live live and write his life and, and live and perform his life in a way that's very, very truthful. You know, there... there there's a person at this place saying, this is what I love. And, and I think that's rather wonderful, actually. I'd rather that a million times over than all kinds of things that are a lot slicker. What do you think, Sid, about the, the question of kind of... You know, people talk about singing <laughs> and kind of vocal personality and all this stuff. And uh, when, you hear, when I heard Bob Dylan all those years ago, right. it was, and when you hear Frank Sinatra, you hear the same things, aren't you? <laughs> Dylan's canon of... Uh... His, his music is heavily based in North America, heavily. And I mean, I, Mexico, United States, and Canada, and that's it. There is very little influence of world music in Dylan's music, unless you become a musicologist and say, what about the West African blues that went to India with the slaves and all that? But unless you make that great sociological, musicological leap, Dylan's music is incredibly focused on America. So for me, and I'm, I'm one of my snotty record collector friends, which most of mine are, it's not that big of a leap to be imitating Sinatra when Sinatra's a great American hero. It's, it's the same thing as, as, as fading Blind Willie McTell or Woody Guthrie or any of the guys that, that Dylan loved. It's not that big of a leap. As regards his singing, I personally believe, and I know I'm sitting next to a great vocalist, but I personally believe Dylan is a great singer who wasn't given a great voice. <laughs> to wit, Billie Holiday had, had the pipes... And the, the, Billie Holiday was such a great singer that the jazzers loved it when she came in a club, like Lester Young and all that crowd, because they would let her up and immediately get her on the bandstand. They, they treated Billie as a musician, like I know her first name, Billie. But they treated Billie Holiday like she was one of the guys, an equal, which I think is fascinating. And, and, and Dylan has that, 
you know, he doesn't have a great voice. He's never had a great voice. But is he a great singer? Yes, he is a great singer. He's a great singer. He's a great singer by all kinds of measures. His phrasing's fantastic. I'm so pleased to hear you, you say know, that. And if you, if, you, if you were going to talk about him as a comparison to Sinatra, there are people who think that Sinatra's out of tune nearly all the time. And if you're deadly accurate and you've got one of those perfect pitch ears, he is. But actually, Dylan's got immense musicality and his phrasing's extraordinary. And, uh, and he's got a playfulness around melody that's, that's just fabulous to listen to i think consistently what about this question of personality though musical personality that you know if you go to sinatra you listen to tony bennett tony bennett's a very good singer he's not frank sinatra no <laughs> you, you you play frank sinatra to a martian they would understand this is this is different and i think the same thing applies with bob dylan versus most of the lewin davises came out of greenwich village who were all very accomplished musicians but they just didn't have that, that quality that made you want to draw close to them. It's, um, it was David Bowie who said he had a voice like sand and glue, which I think is a really, really smart thing to say, actually. And, and for me, it's always been like one of those desert voices, like a cracked desert voice, like wind going across tumbleweed. And there's, there's that in, in the voice. But it's timbre. You know, we're talking about a really recognisable vocal timbre. But he constructed that. He didn't have that when he was a little boy. Because if you listen to the things he did when he was really young, he sang. He, he sang. But he, he found a, a way of driving his own voice that made sense for him. But, but isn't, uh, with, with Dylan, isn't it also to do with personality? Because I, I don't think anybody listens to Dylan who isn't identifying with the, the, person, the character of Bob Dylan. Nobody listens to Dylan and likes Dylan without understanding who Dylan is. I think, I think Sinatra's got a quite a different thing. He's just a terrific technician. But nobody has to feel any kind of personal relationship with Ooh. Sinatra just to think he's... Oh, you, you do? Okay. I think, it's a- I think many people do, actually, Frank Sinatra. They think Frank Sinatra sings their life. That's what they relate to about Frank Sinatra in a way that they don't feel you about Tony Bennett. Never at all. sung my life. That's probably what it is. Well, Bob Dylan's been singing your life, probably. Yeah. You know, that's, it's, you know, it's yeah. a different generation. But uh, we, we've asked actually, we've asked everybody to pick their favourite Bob Dylan look from uh, from his uh, you know his rich. What's wardrobe. wrong with that one? I don't understand. <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, I think this. Um, oh, this is me. Are we going? We're going in chronological order. This is no, my favourite look. Who's this? this? I love this. this? Actually, it looks as though it's been condensed like this. It looks like a peculiar picture. I absolutely love this picture for lots of reasons. This was taken, I think, in 1961. It just arrived in New York City. Um, he is, uh, you know, he'd. It's just a fantastic period of his life. He's exploding with excitement about everything. He read um, Edgar Rice Burroughs and H.G. Wells and uh, Coleridge, and he was obsessed with this idea of storytelling. And he was going through this reinvention of himself as as Bob Dylan. He was turning himself, effectively, into a completely new character. He was going to Café Noir. I've just been reading Chronicles again today, just flicking through his first uh, instalment of his memoir, which I'm sure everybody here has probably got a copy of. It is fantastic, this period, the whole book. And he's talking about going to Café Noir, where he sees uh, Woody Allen, uh, Joan Rivers, Lenny Bruce. It's just fantastic. So this whole world of New York City is kind of imploding. And, and he's so sweet about women. He falls in love with women all the time. He, he sees Carolyn Hester. Do you remember? He, sees, he describes her as being double-barreled beautiful. It's just so fabulous. You know? And what I love about this is he's at this stage, he'd gone back to going into libraries and, and kind of really mugging up about the 1920s and 1930s, the periods that uh, Woody Guthrie in the 40s, that Woody Guthrie, his great hero, was writing about. 
reinvented himself also in this look. Here he is. He had a kind of piece of string for a belt and a little peak cap. And I love the idea that he, you know, has just completely changed his personality. He wrote his own press releases, actually, when he was signed to Columbia and described and, and just erased his whole history. He talked about being born on a fairground, you know. Yeah. And I love that because actually now, in the age of the internet, I don't even know that would be possible. You, you know, this guy it. just came along looking like that, called himself Bob Dylan, said he was born on a fairground. You just Google him and find out he's a sort of vaguely kind of middle class, <laughs> highly educated boy from Hibbing, Minnesota. <laughs> You know, and another thing that's brilliant... He's got no is, mates on Facebook. Yeah, there's, a, there's no mates at all. Nobody likes him. That's right, yeah. And there's a lovely bit also where he talks about wrestling. He's, he's obsessed with this idea of, of, of theatricality. You know, he loved um, uh, Little Richard, and he loved wrestling. And he saw his favourite wrestlers as a guy called um, the Bone Crusher and Goliath. And again, that idea of kind of reinventing yourself and giving yourself a new name and getting on stage and all that, all that, I think, is packed into this picture at the moment where he's trying to get himself a record deal and once he gets a record deal and gets some success then you know he can go off and do what he wants but so it's, that, it's quite gimmicky and it's so I think it's just a thrilling picture that's your it's just look. hilarious that's your look this is Barb I've chosen this as you you were interested in the the domestic the domestic bliss period <laughs> yeah. I think it's really interesting it's a really interesting thing because it's when it's when Dylan stops really writing actually and and it's when he, he describes himself as happy and I think there's all kinds of fascinating things in there so Carney Wright because he's happy he's there with Sarah Lowndes and they're in this idyllic place and they've got kids and they're photographed on the beach together and they're having picnics and playing with the kids and he doesn't want to write and he doesn't want to tour and then all of that fractures and fractures and fractures alongside his marriage alongside everything else and he starts writing again and comes into that massively creative period I I love it it's interesting He, he did the kind of marriage and kids thing very intensely, didn't he, for yeah. a very short period of time? Yeah. yeah. How many children? Four. Four. Four very quickly. Mm. You know, it was like that's done with now. Move on. Next thing. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't slow at all. But it's extraordinary that ability to just change his appearance. That you know, a new hat or whatever. And his face looks different. I think it's, it does. it's a really interesting time because it's the one time when you look at him in his kind of professional career and you see a difference in the face. And it's really interesting. It's fuller and restful and it, all that kind of anger and angst is, is not there that you see in everything else. So most of the time at this time, I think he was wearing specs, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was. Does he wear contacts nowadays? Nobody knows. Sid, what about you? These are the you kind of this. issues that we thrash out. I'm word in your ear, by the way. <laughs> You're going to go home older and wiser. They won't be sitting here in 40 years' time asking them about, about Ed Sheeran. You know, did he? Did he? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, right, uh, Sid. This is the nearest I could do to getting right. a representation of his tea towel. Look. Okay, this goes back to a, a point. Both Sinatra and Dylan or in a way, false. At least their public personas are false. Sinatra was what was a little guy in terms of statue. And to word it politely in a pub, he got thumped a lot back in Hoboken. He was not a tough guy, and he had a big mouth, and he had a chip in his shoulder. He was a singing waiter. So when... and I'll, This is going to be on the public record, but A, like Keith Richards, it's a front. Keith, if you read Keith's book, and I, I, I met, again, first name like I know him, and I interviewed Keith Richards once, and I thought... The great Rolling Stones tough guy. If a fight broke out, I'll have him. I'm, 
I'm six foot two, and this weaselly little guy that looks like a skull has been painted with really thin arms. This is the big Rolling Stones tough guy. I mean, are you kidding me? And Sinatra was the same way. And Dylan, I'm not saying he's a wimp. What I'm saying is they're actors. That, Sinatra is a front. That you know, I can get all the chicks and all this stuff. He had that front before he became it. Bowie had that front before he became the star. He and Tony DeFries acted like David Bowie was going to be a star, and he was a star. And it comes to pass. Look at Dylan. Do you think he really doesn't know he looks Christ-like? <laughs> Do you think he doesn't know there's a reference to sort of the Middle Eastern vibe he's got going here? He doesn't need a stylist. He's, he, he is a stylist. He's an actor. He's acting a part. And what I really love about this is why does he have what looks to be a Middle Eastern uh, head, head garb on his head? In fact, in, in one of my books, I know what it's called. And I've, I've forgotten here. But anyway, here's how he got it. They were fixing his house in, in Malibu, the expensive house called The Dome. And there was a crack in the dome, which funny enough had to be replastered. And at the time, all the young construction workers in the United States, this is 75, had, had very, summer of 75, had very, very long hair. Everybody in America had long hair in 75. We're a little behind you, but we caught up. <laughs> so these guys working on his house, and I got this from the people that were there. This isn't something I heard from, you know, Chubby down the pub. Wore these tea towels on their heads with maybe baseball caps or just a belt tied around it to keep the plaster off their frighteningly long hair so then when they went out later that evening, uh, they didn't have little bits of plaster on them. And Dylan loved the look. So look what he's imitating. He's actually imitating guys that worked on his house. That's literally where the, the, the look came from. But you cannot tell me this guy's not acting a part, that he's not, as it were, an actor. You cannot tell me that. I'm not saying that's cheating. It's part of pop music. It's, it's the great game of pop music with Neil Young and Bowie and all these guys doing all these guises. But uh, I, just, I just find it fascinating because, you know, he's got this Middle Eastern biblical vibe going. And uh, it's because the construction workers on his house didn't want to get their hair dirty. <laughs> I thought you. Yeah, I thought you were going to tell us the story. Was it Ava Gardner said about Frank Sinatra about his dimensions? There's a very rude line, isn't there? About it's your line. Thank you. <laughs> My wife's here. <laughs> I'll leave you to look that up. Okay. Um, this is mine. Uh, only, only because. <laughs> This was not the night I went, I think, yeah. because the tie was done up further on the night I went. But, you know, it's, it's, during, that, it's during that talk. And I, th- I just thought it was very interesting that if you, if you did, you know, 1965, if you had to predict the future, that you know, Bob Dylan would still be around in the year 2015, <laughs> the last thing you would ever have predicted would be that his band would have uniforms. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I thought it was extraordinary. They, they all went on stage. They're matching it was so suits, it black was shirts, you yeah. know, hats where required and so forth. And that pose at the end of the first half oh. when they all came to the front yeah. of the stage and posed. Which is and they all just nice. Yeah. Filled, for, for the yeah. benefit of anybody who didn't see this, it's one of the most... Ex- you know, you talk about pyros on, you know, pop presentation and really impressive things and tongues, you know, appearing from... And fire and yeah. all that. This was the most impressive thing I've ever seen on on the stage. At the end, after they'd done the encores, they all came. Him and five members of the band yeah. came and stood in the middle of the stage, 
They didn't touch each no, other. They don't bow or anything like that, do they? They just put their hands by their sides and they just looked. But they, had, they, yeah. but they struck positions. They, struck, were, yeah. they struck positions. It was like they were in some there sort of Victorian There is no way photograph. that happened without somebody saying, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. <laughs> but also, the yeah. lights, the Corridor. lights for that show were fantastic. The design of that show is beautiful. If you're interested in what goes into something before it goes out, you go, that's an awful lot of work went into that. And it was very... Very beautifully done, right the way through. I thought it was fabulous. So the notion that you know Bob Dylan is the is the kind of uh, you know artless, you know instinctive, you know I, I go on stage and whatever I happen to be wearing that day is just nonsense. No, you know, he thinks about it as much as Britney Spears, doesn't he? But you know, in, um, when he was how in... can I look like a crystal meth dealer on the Mexican border from Breaking Bad? <laughs> is what he said to his uh, his uh, stage stylist and choreographers. <laughs> when he was in New York, when he was right early on, um, Bob Fast told me that they were one day walking through because Bob Fast knew him very well. They were walking through Greenwich Village, and every night there was a there was a. Um, Mother Courage, I think, was on. And uh, they used to go in and watch it when they'd finished doing their folk set. And they'd go in and watch the end of it. And one day they were walking along and somebody ran up to them and said, will you be in it? And the reason was because they would fit the costumes. Uh, but what, what we always forget is that he really did spend an awful lot of time inside theatres watching things that were theatrical. Absolutely. It's no surprise yeah. at all that this is constructed. Yeah, completely. I had uh, friends in the rag trade uh, in Hollywood when I lived out there, right? And they were specifically doing, uh, not people for movies, but rock groups. And they got doing better and better. And this couple thought they'd go, they were doing better with Western wear. The Western and country and Western, believe it or not, comes from California, not Texas. So they'd sort of hit a ceiling. They thought, let's really go for it. So they moved to Nashville. And they got Bob Dylan as a client. And Bob Dylan calls up once and says he wants an Edwardian top coat that's gray and he wants the the felt collar. Am I losing everybody here? And the five buttons down the front. Okay. And the and the the the, 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 the uh, pockets on the side come up at about a thirty five degree angle. They're not even. They're not sort of parallel to the ground. They come up like that. He's and they were just stunned. Had no idea. Went through all their books. This is this is thirty years ago, pre the internet. They went through all the books. Couldn't find anything. So late one night, I got a phone call, and this guy Jimmy goes. Sid, we got it. You won't believe we got a phone call from Bob Dylan. He wants this, this, this. And I said, Yeah, will you be able to find a picture? You want, you know, kind of this thing. And he says, And Bob says, they're just like the jackets that Johnny and the Hurricanes wore. <laughs> Do you all even know who Johnny and the Hurricanes are? Oh, yes. I mean, can you imagine being that specific and, and remembering down through the years what Johnny and the Hurricanes look like? And I said, Well, just get a picture of Johnny and the Hurricanes. And of course, it's sort of 1983. Where do you get one? Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Have to go and get a Rolling Stones illustrated history of you rock and roll. You have to go, I would think, to the, uh, the Los Angeles Public Library on Hill Street downtown, where they have a massive entertainment section, and somebody could probably find you one. But what an extraordinary thing <laughs> to ask for. It is. It's yeah. amazing. So, so those are the looks. Now, we've asked, we've asked, um, we've asked everybody to pick their, their uh, favourite Bob Dylan record. Bob, this is yours. I know, I love it. I love it. I, I love the sound of it. I love the, the violin. I think that whole Scarlet Rivera thing is fabulous. And I, and I, I, don't, I, 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 can't, I can't separate the, the, the whole production of it and the whole flavour of it from the songs at all. I, I tried again today and I thought, no, I can't. I just love the sound of it. And it seems to be a sort of a bridge album somehow. It, it's, it's got that f- faint flavour of 
folk music still in it, but it's clearly electric and it's going to be rolling thunder. It's going to be this massive thing. Uh, and and it, it, the, the whole weaving of the violin, the way the violin's just free, the, it plays like a bird throughout. And I love that Emily has poor, the poor people who have to sing with Bob Dylan. Because I don't know if you know, but he doesn't rehearse. I know all kinds of people who've worked with him, and I now know very, very clearly that rehearsal and doing things the same and counting bars and all the things that most people do, he's really not interested in in any way which is fine if you're not singing with somebody. But if you're singing with them, it's a nightmare. And it just shows how great Emmylou Harris is because she glues to him and he's all the time he's switching on her because he's, you know, he's got a streak of evil, Bob Dylan, which is why he's brilliant. It's, why we, it's, it's certainly why I love him because you know he's, there's a slightly feral feeling about him somehow. He's, he, there's a slight danger. It's interesting. It's had all these, there's been loads of kind of guest music Work with them over the years. Nobody has outshone him, have they? Can't, I can't think of one. Nobody's become a star on the basis of, you know. No, well, I mean, Emily I mean, Harris is, is pretty well, fantastic. Yeah, but she'd done Graham Parsons by then, yeah. I think. And, but know, but, she, but she's, she's kind of beautiful in that. And, yeah. and again, the timbre of his voice and her timbre and Ronnie Blakely and, and also the. Um, the violin and the mandolin and the whole way that they all sit together in that kind of jingle jangle thing. I, I think. It's Have you ever fabulous. seen the sleeve of uh, John Phillips' Wolf King of L.A.? Almost the same oh, thing. Exactly. It came yeah. out before it. It's exactly the yeah. same picture. Yeah. yeah. It's John Phillips with a top hat, you know, yeah. looking in the same in the same direction. Well, he never minded stealing the. Odd no, thing. Oh, absolutely. In fact, everything is stolen. Um, and this is mine, John Wesley Harding. Yeah, nice. I, I was, Terrific. I, I was thinking about this today. This was recorded in three sessions, is that right, Sid? Three sessions in late 1967. So the Summer of Love, Sergeant Pepper, Axis Boulders Love, isn't that 1967? Yeah. I think it yeah. is. Yeah. Their Satanic Majesty's Request. What, what do you know about every record that you hear? It's, it's full of stuff. It's absolutely drenched with you know, yeah. additional effects... Orchestras chucking things that we've never had before. Let's have sitars. Let's have. But then, yeah, wasn't this record meant to be like that? Wasn't these are just the basic no, tracks? Did, and they were going to have overdub, three sessions. They were going to overdub a load of guitars and other instruments. And when he heard it, he said, "It's fantastic. Yeah. Just leave it as it is." Three sessions with um, in Nashville. He did, and the first two sessions were just with. And Sid will correct me on this. I think Kenny Buttery, the the, the drummer. Yeah, Charlie and McCoy. Charlie McCoy on the bass. And the bass is the lead instrument throughout yeah. most of the record. I actually thought that, that's who those people were. <laughs> I, 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 when I got the record, I looked at the back Drake. and said, Char- Charlie, Kenny Buttry, Charlie McCoy. And I thought, which one's which? And I just assumed that was the band. So a bunch of kind of Native American Indians, you know. It's amazing. So he goes in the studio in Nashville. He does two, two sessions with them. And then they get Pete Drake in to play steel guitar. And he has to say to Bob Johnson, who's producing it, beforehand, do you think we could get a steel guitar? Because in 1967, to put a steel guitar on a record was like saying, let's have a swanee whistle on it. You know? <laughs> it was comical, wasn't it? A rock and roll true. record. Very true. Yeah. Sorry? Very true. And, uh, and you know, he did these. He, he turned out these songs, you know, I Pity the Poor Immigrant and, you know, Down on the Cove and... 
frankly, Judas Priest and all these things. And then he played the, the tapes to Robbie Robson, Garth Hudson. Robbie Robson, if, if he never did anything in his life, yeah. the most significant thing Robbie Robson ever did was say, leave it. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't he me? They were going to overdub organ and guitar. Yeah. And he cannot have been any better at all, you know. And, uh, and there it is, this, this kind of spare, puzzling yeah. little record. And I, I picked it because I think I play this more than any other Bob Dylan record. And I've got all Bob Dylan's records probably three times over. And, I, and it struck me that, I, that you end up playing records that are spare, it's like I never play Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, but I play Hard Day's Night all the time. Because yeah. Yeah. it's just because simple. They become too, it's, not, it's like cheesecake. Yeah. They're too rich and too <laughs> ornate. You know? The less production something's got, the more you go back to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I suppose the cover reflects that perfectly. Well, you, you realise nobody on, except Dylan has anything to do with that record, right? You've got two guys with the Bengali balls on each side, right, from the subcontinent, musicians from the subcontinent, and uh, I don't know where the other four balls are, but they're somewhere in the house, I guess. The guy behind in the glasses that looks sort of puzzled is Charlie somebody. His last name escapes me. He was the fellow fixing Dylan's wall. <laughs> We're back to this. This is the it back. All links up. This is this is the back of Albert's with masonry. This is the back garden, or as we'd say in America, the backyard of Albert Grossman's house. It's below zero in Woodstock, New York. It's December. It's below zero. That is a Polaroid snapshot. So there's two guys. The three guys that have nothing to do with the album whatsoever. And I, I want you to look at Dylan's jacket because I'll come to that later on tonight. But you see the cowboy hat down there that's sticking up. The photographer uh, has the camera, he has a little cheap Polaroid, it's on a timer, and he thought he'd get in one of the pictures, so he's down like this with his cowboy hat. To wit, the photograph isn't even cropped properly. I never knew that. And this is in the era of, you know, satanic, expensive Michael Cooper cover, and the wonderful, uh, it's Peter Blake did Sgt. Pepper's cover, right? Wonderful covers that cost a lot of money. And look at the crop, the guy's, but they they didn't include his face. I never knew that. But it kind of gives the lie to the idea that people always talk about, you know, they ask Bob Dylan about the 60s, and he always says, I don't know anything about the 60s. I don't remember it, really. I know the 50s, whatever, you know, that he didn't reflect his times at all, really, did he? He was out there on his own, you know, his, his own dimension. P- please remember that jacket, because I'll have something before we leave. <laughs> oh, do you want to talk about it? Go on. Not, not, not yet. We'll, good, we'll get to it. Don't let me forget the jacket. No, okay, we won't. All right, Mark, oh, this, love is this is the one I chose. Yeah, God, there could have been so many, but this is the one I chose, because it came out in 2001. Do people know this record? Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Yeah. fantastic. Brilliant. Record. Um, it came out in 2001. I like it for two reasons. One is, I suppose, lyrically, and in terms of its its atmosphere, it seems like a, a, an exploration of a kind of F. Scott Fitzgerald 1920s, 1930s America. He's obsessed with this. All the songs are about um, uh, rivers and, and fishing for bullheads in fishing boats and the bees and the birds and the heat. And you can feel the kind of turning of the riverboat wheels. He, one point even lists rivers. It's the Cumberland, the Ohio, the Mississippi. It is just fantastic. There are people in, in horses and, and carriages. And uh, there's a track, actually, in... Um, what was the one before? Time Out of Mind, was it? Yeah, 1997. There's one on that, actually, called Trying to Get to Heaven Before, before They Close the Door, which starts that whole thing of the 1920s, which is just a beautiful idea. And I like it musically because... I always felt that Dylan, we were talking about this earlier, actually, I was, Sid was, that Dylan um, kind of has been on a kind of um, 
a kind of odyssey to reactivate and explore every aspect of American roots music, if you can call it that. He started out as a folk and blues musician, as we know. Uh, he then made very soon a country uh, a record, which we've seen pictures of. Um, he made a gospel record, he had a bluegrass track, Country Pie, or was it Turkey Chase, bluegrass track? Um, you know, he's just made this record of... Um, you know, big 40s, um, you know, Times Square ballad. But during this period, Love and Theft, he turns his attention to jazz and swing and jump and jive. And they're, they're beautiful chords. Or he uses these sixth chords all the way through, little blocky little constructions to the songs. And it's absolutely mesmerizing, I think. And uh, it's fascinating. And that's the stuff that he was, you know, that he grew up with. That's another thing. Time, um, theme time radio hour, which I became absolutely obsessed with. I got like, like, all, all of them, all catalogued, you know. And it really interested me that he very rarely seemed to either play, or if he did, be comfortable playing music that came out after 1962-63. He was very happy playing the music that he grew up with, because it had a big effect on him. And I, I suppose it's a very loose theory, but after six it is absolutely impossible for any of us to hear a vast amount of any pop music or rock music that doesn't have echoes of Bob Dylan. Mm. The way he constructed songs, the way he wrote, uh, the way he even influenced the Beatles in looking at this kind of inward self-exploration. Um, and so there are just echoes and fingerprints of Bob Dylan over everything beyond that. Mm. And, and, and so therefore, the music that he grew up with and the music that influenced him uh, still has the greatest impact. And I just love the idea that he's gone back to listen to this. I mean, when he was signed to Columbia by John Hammond, um, there's a lovely bit in Chronicles of the Reading Today when he talks about Hammond, he said Hammond is just overpowered. Hammond had signed Cab Calloway, he'd signed uh, Count Basie, and he'd signed Billie Holiday. And Dylan said, uh, these are musicians who resonate through all American culture. And I, I suppose he, he now finds himself in that in that succession, yes, you know, and I thought that was wonderful, and I, it's also so brilliant that he listened to so much music, uh, and that's partly why his music's so diverse and so rich, and also didn't go on about it. Do you know what I mean? Music musicians, if they were big jazz fans, of course, I've got loads of jazz records. You never knew that he liked jazz until he made this extraordinary record. Did he, did, he, did, was he the person who said, "There's nothing new in music. There's only old stuff you haven't heard yet." I think he did. did he I don't say know. That? Did he say that? Anyway, it's good. He has that. <laughs> he said that. Sounds like he could have done. Because, because you know, if he has his biggest kind of you know inheritance for somebody like me is the fact that what he seems to be saying is the best stuff has always happened before. You've just got to go back and listen to it. There and is... the simpler it is, the harder it is for you to listen to it nowadays in the, in the supposedly sophisticated. Age that we live in, you know. But all of the all of the theme time radio tracks have got that rawness that you find in that you find him exploring right the way through his career. Yeah. All of the all of the production sounds you find the roots of them back there in those theme time. They're, they're in all of those tracks, and it's extraordinary that he that he um, somehow picks on the best version of something. So he'll take a yes. wine spodiode. There's 15 or yeah. 20 versions of it, but he picks the one that's the really, really critical one. Yeah. He seems to absolutely know all that back catalogue massively well. But there was nothing else to listen to, and I think it's really... We forget. We're, we're bombarded all the time with everything, everywhere. And you weren't. You were growing up no, in no. Minnesota and listening to those blues programmes. They were very... that There was nothing else there so the, the, the power of them 
because there was no other light shining, the power of those on a, on a young musician was enormous. Is it, is it in No Direction Home that Paul Nelson, the, uh, you know, the, the man who was a, was a journalist, wasn't he? Saying, I think he was, and then he became an A&R man. He did man, the Little or... Sandy Review, which was the, a fanzine back in the early 1960s that's incredibly influential. Back, there was no internet, as I've said several times. And the Little Sandy Review was incredibly influential, and that was Paul Nelson's and, baby. Uh, and Dylan he, and he, had, he was at the University of Minnesota, and he had more records than everybody else in Minnesota, which affected him. And he had more records than most people in the United States. And he went away, and Bob Dylan just pinched them all. Didn't, <laughs> didn't return them. And... Uh, and, you know, these first three records all come from Paul Nelson's, you know, uh, record collection. So that's, that's, uh, that's Mark's selection. This is Sid's. Is that right, Sid? Well, this, this, I suppose it's kind of obvious, but, I mean, you could, you could pick innumerable ones. I mean, people in this room certainly could anyway. And uh, I first heard this in 1973 back when you could go in a record store, and they actually had records, and they were, you could throw a, a rock in any major city in the Western democracies, and if you had a good enough arm, it would hit or go by the front of a record store. They were just everywhere. And in those days, they had something that people with gray in their hair will know were, were called bootleg LPs. And they were frequently, literally had a little pirate flag at that rack of the hippie record store to show you that these are the illegal ones. They're probably yeah, not even... Out. In a, in a yeah. Crate, yeah, and it kept in a crate, sometimes under the counter. You tap your nose and wink three times. <laughs> yeah. And I would go in these places... Handshake. And there was this Royal Albert Hall bootleg, and the one I bought had no... It had been EQ'd. It had no bottom whatsoever. The bass and the kick drum were inaudible. No, and there was a... Uh, pretty good mid-range and the, the top was psh, there was syllabants coming off the hi-hat and Dylan's trebly telecaster and the whole thing and it was just a disaster I used to roll back the treble on this old primitive solid state guy I had and roll up the bass and you got an okay sound but it was that that, uh, that now is such a marvelous recording that's been cleaned up digital and all that stuff and I just thought what an amazing performance. And I was listening, as, as I'll bet Mark Ellen remembers these. You remember you could buy bootlegs and they would be on like green see-through vinyl? Just vile colors. They wouldn't be, they wouldn't be black. They'd be like a light blue, yeah, handwritten label that you could hold up and see your friend through, through the thing. In fact, I had one bootleg, and this is off the subject, but it's worth hearing. You know what a run-out groove is? Yeah. The Longriders once had a run-out group that said, uh, you know, that, that, that House Martins or uh, was, what was it, Hole 4, London 0? So we once had a run-out group that said Hollywood 4, London 0. And I got a, uh, I thought they'd get a laugh. And I, <laughs> I bought, I once bought a bootleg, I think it was of Dylan's, that said in the run-out groove, how to keep a black uh, Sabbath fan busy for hours, turn over. And on the other side, the run-out groove said, how to keep a black Sabbath fan busy for hours, turn over. <laughs> anyway, so I bought this, and I think it was on the Porky Prime Cuts, not Porky Prime Cuts, but the, the, the pig label, what was it called? Trademark of Quality, yes. that's what it was called. And Rhino Records have a rhinoceros in tribute to the, 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 uh, the pig of the bootlegs. That's where Harold Bronson and Richard Foos got got Rhino Records. So anyway, I got this, and I just, I couldn't believe it. And the other thing was, it starts off with Tell Me Mama, which is such a great song, which is a classic uh, Dylan move in that killer song, my band, your band, would, would sell mom to the white slavers to, you know, have such a great piece of material, and Dylan doesn't record it in the studio. It's just a track they play a few times live, and that's it. And there's people that are now are in really hip, indie, aggressive 
guitar bands that would kill to have a song like Tell Me Mama or so much of the, of the, of the basement tapes. They'd kill to have it. Eh. We recorded it once and it's on a live record that no one can buy. It'll come out 33 years later and that'll do. Thank you. But there's, there's loads of cases of this when you look right through the 60s. The notion that, the, that anybody was going to run out of songs was... Nobody could conceive of it. No. This, you know, you, you get the Beatles peeling off Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever from Sgt. Pepper thinking, don't we replace them? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody post the 60s does that at all. And uh, I, went, I went through, for tonight, I, I braced myself for this and went through and listened to so much of Dylan's back catalogue. I thought, has anyone ever kept more things in this studio? And the only act that has come close is the Beach Boys over the past 50 years. They are still putting out things that Brian Wilson worked on that are fantastic and worth hearing. But there's not as many. And, of course, this is just one guy. And Brian Wilson had a whole team behind him, not just the guys in the band. You know, Brother Dennis had talent. Carl had masses of talent, blah, blah, blah. They had engineers in Hollywood that the best money could buy. Dylan's more or less on his own. And he has more unreleased great songs than any act I can I, that, that ever exists. And believe me, there's no one, you know, Sinatra, Beatles, anybody. Believe me. You talk, yeah, you talk about this a bit in your in your book, don't you, Sid? About about the these demos would make their way around the music business, the tapes he knocked out for publishing. Before mentioned Paul Nelson, who was uh, not to be sneezed at, was a big champion of Rod Stewart. Got him on Mercury Polygram with that first record. Got the New York Dolls signed. Had excellent taste. He's the guy that gave Rod Stewart tapes of these early things like Only a Hobo, which is why it's on Gasoline Alley at Al. There was a, um, a, a college, if you will, a collection of uh, hipsters that ch- exchanged real-to-real tapes. Long before the, the, those two hippies, which is in my other, uh, uh, which is in the book as well, did the, did the Great White Wonder, long before that, that uh, were exchanging real-to-reels of Bob Dylan. And it's, those of you that are here will remember, real-to-real took commitment. When Real to Real albums came out, put out by Columbia and Warner Brothers and Ed Al, they didn't last for, what, two years? Because no one really wanted a Real to Real of Sgt. Pepper. It took effort to thread the thing and do the whole thing. And one thing the consumer has shown in the, in the post-war record industry, over and over and over and over, they want convenience. They'd rather have an MP3 that was easy to get or cheap to get or whatever that didn't sound well than, than actually play the vinyl or get a CD or whatever. The convenience is paramount with the consumer. Not you all, because you're in this room and you have a certain element of hipness, or if you want to be negative, we're all snobs. But the average person wants convenience, and those reel-to-reels were difficult. So imagine this echelon of Dylan fans all throughout the Western democracy, and I assume the world, that are exchanging reel-to-reel tapes, which are very difficult for the home consumer to copy. Because why? You've got to have two reel-to-reel decks, and they aren't cheap. And this guy inspired all of that. More than the Fab Four, this guy inspired it. He is the basis, as much as I love the Beatles and I do, he is the basis for the bootleg record industry that we know today with Pirate Bay and Napster. It starts there. I was fascinated talking to Joe Boyd about when Fairport Convention first heard those Percy song and all these things. They used to go to the publisher... They couldn't make notes, I think that's right. They yep. certainly couldn't record anything. Couldn't take a guitar with couldn't them. Take one. They just sat in a room and listened to the tape once, then went away in a coffee bar and just wrote the thing down yeah. and went and recorded yeah. it. You know. one, one other point. One, one thing I really love about Dylan, which is something I wish I'd have thought of this, but I got it from an interview with the late, great George Harrison. Harrison said, look at everybody in, in the pop pantheon. Uh, Sinatra, you know, Barb, my, my bands, your bands... Uh, you know, a black flag, anybody. And all of them really want to be liked. You can see somewhere in their career that they really want to be liked. And, and Dylan has this 
Where in Bob Dylan's career does he say, oh, please love me? <laughs> no, that's true. When he starts out, there is no, oh, gosh, I hope you all like my records. That doesn't exist. Even his early TV performances on the Steve Allen show and all these other things, he's just Bob Dylan. And it's like, you like me? Great. You don't like me? Eh. And there's, I, I don't know anybody else like that. They're, one, of, they're, one, of my, one of the reasons my, my sole experience of interviewing Bob Dylan was, is such a terrible yes. memory that causes me to snap into a fetal position out of the duvet in the middle of the night when I remember it, was that he's one of those rare people who genuinely doesn't give a fuck what you think about it. And in an interview situation, most people want you to like them or to be impressed by them or something like that. Or both. Yeah. Do, do people know about Dave's interview? It's just so funny. I just, can I just add one thing? Which I, I said, it, was for the, it was the first issue of Q, was it? I set this up, and Dave went over there, and the press guy was so terrified, he couldn't tell. Dylan's so press-averse, as you know. He couldn't tell him that Dave was a journalist, so Dave was introduced to the room to the spa was and Is that right? Yeah, do you remember? And, and then after about three minutes, I'm telling you, yeah, do you remember? And I love I'm, my stories. After about three minutes, apparently Dylan came out and talked, it was Julian Shapiro, wasn't it? Do you remember? At, 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 at Sony, and, uh, and he says, um, and he says, how's it going, Bob? He says, I don't know, there's a guy in there who just keeps asking me all these questions. Which <laughs> is really funny. See, what, what a classic interview that was. But there's a serious, there's a serious point underneath all that. <laughs> Which is, you know, or it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a laugh. But seriously, I haven't got any questions to ask Bob Dylan. You haven't got any questions to ask Bob Dylan. Nobody's, what, what do you want to know from Bob Dylan? That he hasn't told you whatever he's going to tell you in 50 years of being Music. Bob Dylan and making records, whatever. Uh, and and what do you want him to do? Say, yes, I was bluffing with that one. Yeah, exactly. I, if he was complete... Uh, I couldn't agree more. You know, if he was to answer... I made it up and, you know... If he was to answer the questions uh, and destroy this mystery, it would be a complete waste of time. that's the great temptation. The temptation to the ego is to say, yes, I manipulated it all. Yeah. And that's not what the people want yeah. to think. He's much all. more like a painter in that respect. Right. If you th- if you think about him not as a not as a pop person and not as a musician, but if you think about him as as an artist, and you go, well, what what about if you stand him beside Picasso as a for example? Suddenly, it makes a very different kind of sense because there isn't that need to be liked there either. There's a sort of con- there's a there's a confidence in. Yeah. Your work that's just about that, and and another thing, just to to tie into the Dylan and not wanting to be liked, he's not likable. I, 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 yeah, I, I, no, you know, don't miss that. He's not a likable person. And if you talk to people who who know him, there's not a, there's there's an awful lot of people who go, yeah, it's quite difficult, quite difficult. So, so many, you know, Barb, I, I couldn't agree more. I was hoping I'd make the point before someone else did. <laughs> if, if Dylan and his alter ego, in many ways is a guy named Bob Newworth, who, in my opinion, is a major talent. You all know him as the, uh, the, the road manager in uh, Don't Look Back, but he's, he's much more than that. Newworth is a brilliant songwriter, an amazing performer, and a, and a brilliant painter. And he and Dylan at times have been like that, and at times they've been like this. But the point is, both he and Dylan, they, they met at a, at a folk festival at the Bluegrass Stage in Connecticut in 61, and they bonded over they liked banjo and hillbilly music, and they were both loved painting, loved painting. And everyone, so many people, like we've discussed here, so many people wonder how Dylan can go through these changes. As Barb just said, if you look at him like a painter, it's, it's not a problem at all. In pop music, you get fixated on uh, the Birds or Creedence Clearwater or God knows the Ramones, they're guitar bands, right? Yes. 
they have a successful sound. And to a certain extent, they just repeat that sound. And in pop music, it's such a phenomenon when the Beatles or, or Dylan or whomever throw away the old sound and do something completely different, if not just a minor variation on it, but something completely different. And if you look at Dylan as a painter, it makes, it makes perfect sense. You know, Picasso doesn't stay in the blue period or the Cubist period forever. He moves on. And I don't know why it's such a big deal in pop and rock, because if, if you look says the Lord. If you look at Miles Davis, Miles has five distinct periods in his career that don't reflect on the other part of Miles Davis's career. And like Dylan, Miles changes his appearance. His physical appearance changes. Yeah. He's this hipster young guy with a thin tie and perfect fitting suits. And by the end, he's like Elvis wearing those earth, wind, and fire uh, one-piece sort of jumpsuits. <laughs> the last time I saw Miles play, he looked like have you seen Eddie Murphy's Raw? Do you know what Eddie Murphy's wearing? He's wearing one of those jobs with huge fake shoulders. And if you put an American football helmet on him, he'd look like somebody in NASA had in the 23rd century. But that, it, with Miles, in jazz, people go, oh, I accept that he's doing a new thing. And there's something odd that in pop rock you can't accept that someone could do this. I think it boils down to, as, as much hilarity as we're having here tonight, is this guy is a real artist in the way that a lot of people can't fathom or can't understand because so much pop music is please love me and this guy really is an artist which is why time magazine had him as one of the 100 most influential americans of the 20th century he deserved to be there this is uh, this leads quite neatly actually into that we asked everybody everybody to pick a favorite song and uh, barb you chose this is you may not recognize this that's jennifer lopez down there on the left and she is presenting... Oh, this is for real. She's, that, that's when he won the Oscar oh, yeah. for the best song for Things Have Changed yeah. in whenever that was. Quite a few years 2000. ago. 2000. Okay. And he got a Golden Globe as well. Was it the Wonder Boys? Yeah, it was, it was the, 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 the Wonder, Wonder Boys. Boys. Right. And so why have so you there was that? another throwaway track, so it's not recorded for an album, is this great, great track that opened the last tour, if you remember. It was, uh, it was, it was his opening number on the last tour. And, and it's such an extraordinary piece of writing. It's fantastic musically. It's a really great melody. And it's a beautiful construction because it's, it's got that whole ABC set up right the way through it. And then it just goes through it. It's in it, that self-referential way that, that Dylan does where he cunningly disguises not really things that he's telling you that are sort of true. Um, all Such as, go on. Well, uh, 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 feel like falling in love with the first woman I meet, put in a wheelbarrow and wheeling her down the street. Um, uh, I'm in love with a woman who don't even appeal to me. You know, things that are very clear statements, actually, very, very clear statements of, of personal relationship, but just dusted in there, uh, walking 40 miles of bad road, if the Bible is right, the world will explode. I've been trying to get as far away from myself as I can. Yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. And, and, the, and, and it's got the, the, the key line is, I used to care, but things have changed. I used to care, but things have changed. <laughs> Which is... Which is pretty challenging to the generation of the So 60s. easy to identify. <laughs> when he makes the speech after Jennifer has presented him with this, um, he thanks the film company for commissioning the song. Mm. And he said, because uh, he, he it's quite a hard-hitting song or something like that, he says, because it talks about the truth of human nature. Mm. <laughs> Which I thought was a very interesting point. Yeah. You know, because so much songwriting is not about the truth of human nature. It's about... 
what we'd like to feel was the truth about human nature. Well, well, He's saying, I, I used to care, things have changed. I hurt easy, I just don't show it. You can hurt someone and not even know it. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's full, every single every single It's couplet. very tough, isn't it? It's fabulous. It? And, it's very tough yeah, for you and, of the world. And wiry and, and, and exactly as he is. And somebody said that um, he was really pleased to have gotten the Oscar and that he took it on stage with him. And it was always on stage and sitting still there is. and he was is happy it really? to have Does he it there. take his Oscar on stage with him well, still? Well, apparently it's a replica, but it's always on stage. It would have been at the Royal... I, I saw it at the Royal Albert Hall in October of uh, 2013. It was, it was still on his amp. That? It, that's in the contract, by the by. <laughs> That it appears on his amp on stage. That's fantastic. But, but I'm sure it's not his real one. He got so many other things. He got so many other awards and and appreciations. And I think that was that's regarded as being very meaningful. And because of his relationship to film as well. Again, because I'm going back over everything, and you start thinking about Ronaldo and Clara, and um, and Maston Anonymous, and and thinking, oh Lord, film, film and Dylan. It's such a weird relationship. Hearts of Fire. Well, I. Really chose that look. I, I thought Hearts of Fire. I, thought, I think soon. we have a Hearts of Fire picture coming up at some point. Oh, great! <laughs> you may have to avert your eyes. No, but, but that, that relationship that. that he's got to film is, you know, it's really clearly recognised in that. I think. Interesting point. Uh, John John Baldy, who Mark and I used to work with, uh, sadly no longer with us. He was a great Dylan scholar, and John always used to say, "Give him a Q award. He almost turns up." <laughs> And it's, it's interesting, Bob Dylan oh. does turn up. He turns up the Polar Music Prize. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the, French, the French government gave him something. And it also ties into my it's other theory that makes him it? unique among superstars is he goes to places. People don't go to him. Look, he turns up outside Neil Young's house in wherever it was, childhood home in Toronto, in, is it? Actually, you know, what do you think Liverpool? about Liverpool? Think about it as a comparison to your Billy Joel story earlier on. <laughs> we were talking about Billy Joel, and, and Mark was saying that, um, David was saying that, that Billy Joel gets a helicopter from his lawn, and then it's, he's taken to a people carrier, and the people carrier drives downstairs into Madison Square Gardens, he walks upstairs, does his gig, comes downstairs. Helicopter. You know, all of that. But there's loads of pictures of Dylan walking in the street. There's loads of pictures of him in, oh. a, in a cafe in Malibu. That's He's fine. not afraid of this, being in the world at there, all. No, no, no. that's the reason That's the reason the classic Dave Stewart story about, you know, Bob Dylan turning up at somebody's door in Crouch End rings so true. Because he turns up at people's houses. Friends but it is a true story. <laughs> well, Dave Stewart told me it's a true story. Oh, this this yeah. is worth hearing. Please let me interrupt. This, <laughs> friends of mine in 1991... In the Republic, put on. Uh, they were, worked for Sony Music Art, right? So they're in the Republic. They've got a big do. Dylan's playing the Enormo Dome, or perhaps the, uh, the, the whatever the biggest outdoor thing is in Dublin. And they have a do. Sony Music in the Republic of Ireland, right? Branch has a do for Dylan put on. They've made it very clear. You know, it'd be great if you could come and shake some hands and all this other stuff. And the do goes on, and Dylan doesn't show up, and the band members are there, and they're kind of scratching their heads. Well, I don't think Bob's going to go as they reach for another hors d'oeuvre. And, you know, so they have this Dylan do after this big successful gig, and uh, Dylan's not there. And my friend who helped put it on, working for Sony, he's Irish, funny enough, is pretty disappointed because he wanted to do right by his hero, Dylan, and it was a big moment for him, and he got the catering and all this stuff together. And after an hour or so, hour and a half, he... You know, thanks. Well, it's over. So he's driving home. He's driving through Dublin. It's midnight or the wee hours, whenever the gig has, has been over for about two hours. And he pulls up a stoplight. This is a guy I know. 
looks over, and there at a bus stop, talking to an old lady, is Bob Dylan. And this old Irish lady is sitting there, and Dylan's standing there with his hands in his pocket, just having this perfectly sweet conversation with some old octogenarian who has no idea who he is. And and the light goes green, and my friend is just staring at Bob Dylan talking to this lady, and she's got a really sweet face repeating something to Bob, and Dylan's like, yeah, yes, ma'am, I know. And he starts to grind down his window, and behind him, the guy goes, eh! to move it and he just thought forget it and he just drives away and leaves Bob no car I don't know how Dylan got there maybe Dylan wants bus directions but Dylan at a bus stop talking to an old lady instead of going to the do which is going to fade him and say we're pleased to have you here yeah, yeah. No, top he, that he, he turns up on wow. people's doorsteps so you know it's never too late it might happen to you um, and so Mark I think this is Mark's uh, yeah, remarkable song love this is some um, my absolute favourite, I think, of millions, and that is The Lonesome Death of uh, Hattie Carroll. She came out, I think, in 1963, on Freewheeling Bob Dylan. I like it for a million reasons. Um, one, he wrote it on the 28th of August 1963, when he was sitting in a cafe in New York reading newspaper, and he saw this, in fact, Dave's found, the, uh, one of the reports. And it's a story, as you know, um, about uh, a tobacco farmer, a 24-year-old rich kid, who gets drunk at a, a, a society ball at a, a hotel in Baltimore and attacks a black well, waitress who's uh, serving on the tables who dies uh, afterwards and uh, he is given a six-month suspended sentence. And Dylan was so outraged by it. And the writing of this song is phenomenal. He's in such a hurry. To, it's, not, it's actually rather kind of gauche and clunky. He's in such a hurry to write it that he simply lifts things directly out of the newspapers. One line goes, William Zanzinger who, at 24 years, owns a tobacco farm of 600 acres. He's literally taking this out of the newspaper. New paragraph. New paragraph, comma, you know what I mean? And there's one book where he rhymes, there's the four lines where he rhymes table with table with table, doesn't he? And then with level, which actually doesn't even rhyme with table. And he's just in such a rush to write this song. And it's so brilliant. And I love various things about it. One... That, um, that it came out at all. Um, he has no legal right to say the things he's saying. They're also completely inaccurate. Um, he suggests that Zanzinger kills Hattie Carroll with a cane, slain with a cane. It's actually not true. Um, she did die. She died as a result of the shock of the verbal abuse, but he didn't thrash her to death with a cane. He talks about him being booked for first-degree murder. He was booked for first-degree murder. He wasn't sentenced for first-degree murder. Um, you know, he, 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 it's, it's, he, he talks about his relationship with the, with the courts and the judges, in Mar- the politics of Maryland, I mean, these outrageous, uh, slanderous things to say. Um, to whether they're true or not, uh, it doesn't matter. I mean, some, some of the, you really, that, that song would never have been put out today. The other reason I love it, it very briefly, is to do with Susie Rotolo. He met Susie Rotolo, again, the girl on the cover of Freewheeling, and, um, which is beautifully described in Chronicles, fabulous bit where he says, I met Susie, he said, and the air was, I'm sorry to put that accent on, so the air was suddenly full of banana leaves. Just a brilliant image where he's just, oh God, this wonderful girl. And Susie Rotolo's parents were members of the Communist Party. Um, she worked for the Congress of Racial Equality, um, incredibly hip and politically active person. And he was so keen to impress her. And it's so true of most men, actually. I think virtually everything I've ever done in my life has been trying to impress a girl, you know. And Dylan is no different. And uh, he's, he's, in order to impress her, he wrote, during the period of their relationship, a series of fantastically 
um, straightforward, hard-hitting, uncomplicated songs. Um, Masters of War, A Hard Rain's Are Gonna Fall, uh, Lonesome Death Valley. Um, Roger McGuinn told me, this is not really my theory, I interviewed Roger McGuinn, and he told me that was Rotella, if you look at the time he went out with her, before that, he wrote uh, Talking Blues and folk songs. After that, he starts getting into the um, psychedelic period of uh, Hey Mr. Tambourine Man. Interestingly, based on a book by uh, Rambo, Lovato Eva, that, that Susie Rotella had given him. So, uh, But during that period, he wrote writes these really specific songs about uh, nuclear war, about the Cold War, about, about um, you know, it, it specific political things. And I think it's an extraordinary moment. I think it's amazing. And it, had he not met this girl, would he have written those songs? Because those are the songs that cemented the relationship between folk music and politics. It gave folk music a tremendous political leverage in a new dimension that, are, that which we still have today the idea that folk music is what was you know the underwrote live aid or, or whatever it's that idea so that it was all to get, the world. to get yep. her into bed that was basically <laughs> <laughs> certainly to impress her it's an amazing it's an amazing story yeah, yeah. Fair enough. so that's lonesome death of Auntie carol oh go through get that back um 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 um, um oh god sorry this is all going wrong um is that going to work? No. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. Got stage crew coming on here. If I just do that big. Got a visual proof. What's the next song? We could just uh, start yeah. to. <laughs> I'm going to have to restart it or something yeah. like that. What's, what's the song? Um, I can't remember. Let's say it was Sid's. What, what, Sid's what, what, yours. What do you choose next? There you go. Um, my, the song I chose is the is the groom's. Or is the groom's the groom's still waiting at the altar? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a reason for this. There's there's two reasons for it. And I'll I'll give them quite succinctly for me. One is a B side, and again going back to what I've said before, if your band had it or my band had it, it wouldn't be a B side. It'd been a featured track on the album. Now it has been wedded onto the album "Shot of Love," but the original album didn't have it on. And I had to get it, as, as did consumers in the United States. I don't know about Europe. I had to buy it back in California on the, on the flip of a single. It was such an overpowerful song, overpoweringly powerful song, that I played it once at a party where the good and the great were there. Um, Dave Alvin of the Blasters, a lot of Los Lobos, a lot of people in my house I didn't know. Uh, John Doe and Xene of X. There's a Zero's um, picture sleeve out there. I know you all probably don't care who that is. But on the left is Javier Escovedo, uh, Alejandro Escovedo's younger brother. The Escovedos were there. Um, it was an incredible party. And I played it once, and then I put the single back in its sleeve, knowing my snotty record collector friends might want to nick it. And I put it back in my bedroom and shut the door and had people begging me to play it again. So one by one at a party, I would take people into the bedroom, <laughs> turn on the lights, not off, turn on the lights and play them. The groom was still waiting at the altar. It had a huge... And people just... Oh, and then they'd come out and Dave Alvin send somebody else back in. And I, I've thought about it since. And if you listen to Tempest, which is a very bluesy record, a lot of Tempest... The templates of Tempest are Billy Boy Arnold or Muddy Waters songs. I mean, they're very, very close to being lifted, if you'll allow me to use that verb. Bob's second album after the first album is going to be called Bob Dylan's Blues. He really is a bluesy guy at heart. And as he gets older, one of the slots he can fall back into comfortably is the blues, as he's touched upon it periodically. And The Groom Still Waiting at the Altar is not only a great track that, that rocks along, it is to me, and I, I've, I've listened to enough chess records in my life, 
to say this with some authority. The groom still waiting at the altar is, is muddy, or Billy Boy, maybe Wolf, but certainly muddy playing blues, playing a Bob Dylan blues. It's this perfect uh, amalgamation uh, of Bob Dylan and Muddy Waters. And every time I hear it, I think that is so powerful and has such an undercurrent of uh, such a punch and so breathtakingly an example of Americana that it just knocks me out every time. And as I said to, to, to David and Mark when, in my, when I replied to my favorite Dylan song, it's a song I could literally hear every day of my life and not be bored of. So that's yours. I managed to get the visuals back. Um, and mine is... I, I just picked up Terrain and Homesick Blues because it's 50 years ago, you know, this month. Richard Williams wrote a very good piece in the Guardian the other day. And the, the thing that, that gets it... I'm getting, getting tweets from people. <laughs> if Lucas Hare knew that he was saying... Um, <laughs> I hope we get nothing personal. Um, Your dinner's at the camp. <laughs> yeah. You know, he, he made this record... The, the brilliant thing about this record is it just sounds like a complete accident, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. If you asked them an hour later to do it again, they couldn't do it again, could they? No. And I can remember hearing it for the first time, which I think was on Jukebox Jury on the television. No. And so I think it was. I have a memory of, of, of the... Uh, Did Alan Freeman or Simon no, it wasn't Alan give Freeman. it a thumbs up? No, it was London. <laughs> it would be David Jacobs. Jacobs. It would probably be Sam Costa, yeah. Lulu, yeah, Lulu, Charlie so. Drake... And possibly a member of the Rolling Stones. I don't Very know. Wise. They yeah. used to play the songs, and as they played the songs, they would track a camera would track across the audience. They'd be kind of bored-looking, in a puzzled-looking, you know, people coach parties from wherever who try to tap their foot, and you can't tap your foot to subterranean homesick blues. It can't be done. You know what I mean? And I can remember hearing it, thinking, "That's extraordinary. Will it be the same if I hear it again?" You know what I mean? And it was probably weeks before I heard it again. And he did that just a few months after he'd been the folky. Mm. Didn't he? Yeah. It's completely extraordinary. Nothing like that ever been recorded. No, no. Nothing at all. And, and nothing has ever been recorded like that since, I don't think. No, probably not. There's nothing, there's no. nothing like that. So that's my song. So we, we just want to we talk a little bit about your, uh, your uh, our guests' um, current ventures with regard to, to Bob Dylan. So, so Bob, this is, as you said, the fourth of your... Um, do you third. Third, third. Yeah, but well, it's not, because it's, half of it's Leonard Cohen. But, um, but they're all the political songs. So, and I, I had a go at um, Masters of War, because I'd always avoided it. Because uh, I'd been singing with God on our side for quite a long time. And, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful song. And you, you, know, you just get deeper and deeper. And I'd kind of used that as an excuse not to sing Masters of War. Because it, it's very challenging to sing. Because you're aware as you're singing it that you're coming to things that are really quite facing. I did it for two weeks in America just before Christmas. And I thought, I really wonder how they're going to take that. Uh, and and people just went wild. They forgot because people forget what the songs are, what the songs are about. Often, mm-hmm. so they they listen to a lot of Dylan fans listen to the sound, and and do tap their feet and perhaps they're doing something while they're doing it, but actually forced to hear every single word as it was written is is it's very kind of it's astonishing when you when you get those words and you just go. 
listen to that with the melody, just that. Um, and and it, was, it, it was a fantastic experience to do that, actually. But anyway, so that's, that's what... That's how, how do you find that, <laughs> in terms of singing, from a sing, singer's point of view, what's the difference between singing Bob Dylan songs and singing Leonard Cohen songs? Leonard Cohen, who famously spends years... Chiselling yeah, every last syllable into place. You can tell that actually. Bob Dylan, go and yeah, can you can you? tell that when you sing them because there's 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 tiny little giveaway things, where where quite often Cohen will use the same word in in two lines or a line apart from another line, and and it's very deliberately done. It's not accidental. When Dylan does it, it's utterly accidental, and you can tell when you're singing them. There's a there's a flavour difference, and, and although they both sing from the same well, they're both but they're both very you know very moral. I would say, in a kind of righteous um, Old Testament blood and guts and fire and burning bush way. Um, Dylan particularly handles that and, and Cohen smooths that out, I think, a little bit. Do you, it's interesting, you see all these old clips from Don't Look Back or whatever uh, of Bob Dylan desperately typing. You know, where a roll of paper comes out. And it's as if you sort of get the impression that he doesn't read it again, you know what I mean? No, I don't, I don't think he does. I don't and, think he does. And Hart say, Rains, whereas Leonard Cohen would go to verse three no, and then go, go no. no, I've got to go back to one. Yeah. No, and, and he really is, is it true that, I mean, I, the feeling I get is from, I've, I've interviewed Leonard Cohen, I got the impression that he, when he finishes the song, as you say, it takes ages, I mean, what, five years yeah. eventually to, to, yeah. to, to write Hallelujah, all 80 verses. Not that, he, I mean, he did other stuff, but, but, <laughs> but when he's finished it, 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 that's the finished version of the song. Mm. Bob Dylan's Dylan approach is completely different. He seems to think that songs are in a permanent state of evolution. The night he records <coughs> A Hard Rain's a Gun Fall yeah. in 1963 is the night he played it that way. Yeah. And to us, he bought the record. That's, that's the finished version. That's the, that's the original. But, it's not, but it's to just, him, it's just a constant evolution. So therefore, yeah. when you hear these things stretched uh, unrecognisably out of shape later on on yeah. stage, it's because he still feels the song's got a life of its own. It's quite interesting, really, whether you subscribe to it or not. It's and, and it is. And, and, it, and what you choose to, which lyrics you choose to sing, because sometimes you'll come to a song and there'll be five versions of it with different lyrics. Yeah. I mean, Tangled Up in Blues, unrecognisable when you listen to it in the most recent tour. It's, it's, I, 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 I do know the song, I bothered to learn yeah. it. And then it's not, the, it's not the song he was singing. Right. He substantially has changed the lyrics of Tangled Up in Blue and a lot of the, uh, the Blood on the Tracks songs, for, for whatever reason, I don't know, they have evolved. I mean, yeah. they're, they're not, he's not forget, forgotten the lyrics and is making up new lyrics. He's, he's changed how the songs go and the lyrics flow out of them. And I can tell listening that he, he's rewritten the song and it's th- this is how Tangled Up in Blue goes now but one Von Griffin theory of popular music is that when people say Dylan's changed these songs and the arrangements are so different I think and this is a guess but it's a, it's a it's not an illogical one if you'll allow me one reason Dylan does uh, Don't Think Twice It's Alright is a reggae version or Tangled Up in Blue at this fast paced gallop is because as we've said before as Barbara and everyone's pointed out he, he doesn't like rehearsing and a lot of times he has top level, he's top level players, of mm-hmm. course, and sometimes they're hearing the song for the first time, or they've only played it two or three times, and the song, the way Dylan's playing, he's might, he might be in a different key from mm-hmm. the record, he might be playing it at half the speed of the record, he might be playing faster, so they, people go, oh, he's rearranged this song. He hasn't so much as they're playing catch-up with, uh, with the way it is, with the way Dylan's playing it now. Ben Mont uh, Tench, the great keyboard player for Tom Petty, used to live near me in Hollywood. And he said when they did that thing in 86 where they ran around the world, I think it was called Temples in Flame, the tour in Australia. Yeah. 
He said, Dylan, they said, we want a set list and we'll learn the songs. And, you know, you don't even have to be there, Bob. So he gave them 30 songs. And he said it was the second or third show. And Bob turned and started playing Positively 4th Street, which, as you know, what's the punchline? It wasn't one of the 30 songs. <laughs> and I, a couple of my friends were in the, the band that played, uh, that, a couple of friends of friends, to be strictly speaking, uh, played, were with Dylan at 2001. And I don't want to give names, but they said... The reason that concert at Shep Bush went so smoothly until Dear Landlord was, we never had played Dear Landlord in our lives. And all of a sudden, Bob, sitting at that plastic keyboard, because he's got arthritis, right? It's hard for him to hold the guitar these days. I hope that wasn't a cruel thing to say about the old guy. But he sits at the plastic keyboard now because he's got some problems. And there's a lot of miles in his Cadillac. And they started Dear Landlord. The band's never played it in their lives. And so, to be honest, it was a train wreck. But I think that's one of the reasons people say he's reshaped these songs. They're doing but I think differently. Also, if you play the same songs for fifty years, you might want to. You want to make a change now and again. Yeah. I, I think one of the great things about the last time I saw him was that they didn't rely. I was disappointed they did all along the Watchtower and a, like two other old songs at the end. The rest of the evening was time out of mind forward. Yeah. Yeah. And it reminded me, I know this will be lost on a lot of you, not that you aren't the most intelligent people on earth, but brace yourselves for baseball metaphor. It's like a starting pitcher. Don't laugh. I told this to Dylan's manager, and he agreed with me. It's like a starting pitcher starts to lose his arm. He's been great for, say, 12 years, but the arm starts to go. He's got arthritis. He's got bursitis. God knows what he's got. So he can retire, or he can change his game. He can stop throwing the fastball. He can start throwing change-ups or slower pitches, or they can use him as what's known as a relief pitcher, meaning the team's in trouble, and he comes out and just pitches a portion of the game as opposed to the guy that starts the game. And that's, in my opinion... Well, I saw Dylan do it at the Royal Albert Hall. It was so great not to hear some guys stumble through, as much as we love them, like a Rolling Stone, Tangled Up in Blue. He did all these new songs. It was like, oh. But you know, it's it's in in, um, Chronicles. There's a wonderful bit in Chronicles where Dylan talks about coming to a place exactly that where he can't do it night after night in the same way that's a good portion, and he yeah. has that great um, that great thing where he says so I've come up with a mathematical formula for the guitar and you think what is it and he doesn't tell you he just tells you he's come up with it come up with a mathematical formula so I can be much more easy with it and everybody would want to know that and, I and he did. says and I found a way of not losing because if you're singing like that night after night after night that's a real demand on the voice yeah, and yeah. he says I found a way of singing differently so I'm not making a demand on the voice and I'm not losing my voice anymore and he does and, and, and he's, he comes to that as a very conscious thing and that's wonderful again yeah. you know because that's that's who he is in his life but wanting to carry on doing it and not going oh well then I, I just won't anymore and I think it's brilliant some of his contemporaries as much as I loved the Rolling Stones when I go see them you know you're going to have Satisfaction's the last song of the evening. I've seen them a bunch. I've never not seen Satisfaction be the last song of the evening. I've never not seen them do Sympathy for the Devil. The set list is so 60s and early 70s focused that it's just sad. They have made themselves, not the public or the record industry or the, the cruel winds of fate, they have made themselves, at least live, in an oldies act. And his They're like a tribute band of themselves. In a way, and his royal bobness has now... 
avoided that with this with this new stance and playing all this new material. But I mean, also, the more recent the song is, the more faithfully he sings it. You know, if he's singing record uh, songs he released three or well, four years and, ago, and so he's just like the record. That and let's he, he's not he's not fed up of doing that exactly. that way yet. And yeah. let's remember, these are hit records. I, 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 he's had number one albums in the UK and the United States. Isn't he the, now the guy that's had the the greatest distance between number one albums in the, in the charts? That he had a number one album in '64 or five, and he's had a number one album uh, with the last several. You know what I mean? The, the greatest distance between number yeah. one albums. I think that's his. And I think that's just why, then why have this legacy foisted upon you? Why put these hundred pound weights on your shoulders? Why not just let's, let's fly, let's do this new stuff. People bought them. They were number one. They must want to hear the tunes. So, Sid, your book, uh, this is a, a, an update of, of an earlier book about the basement tapes. Yeah. yeah. What's, the, oh, What's came... the great learning about the basement tapes? What should people well, know about the basement tapes? In six, this is... <laughs> I can give it to you in a nutshell, and then you don't have to buy it. You just walk, walk by in the lobby and think, I don't need that. <laughs> I was amazed that this great album of rock and roll, this great hidden treasure, had no... There wasn't a single book on it that told you what went where and how and why they did it. And it was literally, not figuratively, literally migraine-inducing to write this book at, at times, to get really into it. And I go through each track and tell you who plays on them and all this stuff. The first version of the book, I admit I got some of it wrong. And this past June, I got to go to the Dylan office and hear all the stuff before it came out and, and vet it along with his manager, which I know has impressed so many of you. I heard that collective intake of breath. <laughs> and so we went through everything because they didn't really know either. And I said, there's no way that that is not Robertson. Yes, Robertson on the drums, right? Because you've got two keyboards going. We know there was a third drummer. Robbie was anyway. So I went through all this stuff, and the one thing I really came out of it was, as these gentlemen know, and I bet you all know, in 67, the only thing that came out was a Greatest Hits package. That's it. Yet, in 67, Bob Dylan wrote, A, more songs than he wrote in any other year of his career, highest number. B, in my opinion, wrote the, had the most hit, groovy, purple patch of songs of any other year in his career. C, recorded more covers, if you allow The Basement to be a cover, to be a, a recording studio, than any other year of his career. Recorded all of this. D, was the most time spent in the studio, 1967. So look at the, think of those four facts and what happened. Nothing comes out till almost a half century later. And that, as much as anything we could say tonight, to me at least, sums up Bob Dylan. Because <laughs> there is a quote in, in, in your book that uh, Robertson, I think, or somebody like that, says, we never thought anybody would hear any of this stuff. It's the idea that they did Robertson was, was a big help. He has, in my opinion, he suffers from uh, a bit of a bad press now. I think he's a, I think he's a major talent. And I, uh, I'm very grateful to him. And he, he was a bit of a Greek chorus for me in this uh, book, uh, the great drummer Levon Helm. I begged him to be interviewed. And as they say in the music business, his people begged him to be interviewed. But he, no, he, he wouldn't do it. But then Garth's, uh, anyway, get the book. <laughs> well, the, the, the book will be available for you to buy afterwards, as, as, will, as will Bob's uh, uh, CD. Um, the, 
I just wondered, Mark, you sent me this picture. Oh, I sent you a picture. I love that picture. I got sent this picture by um, uh, Dave Stewart is, uh, of, of the Eurythmics, etc. Was is a major um, Dylan um, fan, and so I kind of know him through her, his obsession with Dylan, really. And he once gave me this picture, which he t- I just thought was, I didn't know you were going to show that. It's just so great. It, it was taken in, uh, during Rolling Stone um, uh, in 1997 on stage at um, uh, in Tokyo, and uh, Dave Stewart at that period was playing guitar in Bob Dylan's band. I just love the picture because. You just wonder sometimes, well, if, you, if you're like me, you wonder daily, really, what, what the world looks like through Bob Dylan's eyes. And, and that's as near as we're ever going to get. I love it. I absolutely love it. And also, it's one of those rare moments where he actually appears to be smiling. But it, it must be so extraordinary to go out every night and see you know, people looking up at you, wearing the facial expressions that these people are wearing here. And uh, it, it, no wonder you've become quite a peculiar person, working out a form of resilience that can well, deal with that level of agility. I must say, people look just like that at my gigs. Yeah, of course. Sorry. So, yeah. No, it's not, it's not unusual. <laughs> but it's a great picture, isn't it? You're just literally sitting on his shoulder, you know. Well, look, everybody's sat patiently and listened for... 90 minutes. We're going to do a little bit of audience participation at this point. No, nobody has to sing. Okay, don't worry. I picked out um, 10 pictures of people who feature in the lyrics of Bob Dylan's songs. Starting with, does anybody know who this is? Nobody knows who this is. Who? It's from, it's from uh, the so, one of the LP you were talking about. Well, it, <laughs> which one? I should narrow it down a bit. I should, <laughs> <laughs> just give us a clue. Please, I'll tell you the answer. It's from John Wesley Harding. No, Tom. No. It's Tom Payne. Yes, it's Tom from John Wesley Harding. Oh, the song, right. sorry. Yeah, he's absolutely yes. right. As I went out this morning, morning. To, yeah. to breathe the air around Tom Payne. Uh, Tom Payne, the famous campaigning journalist and so forth. Okay. It's difficult, isn't it? <laughs> Anybody know who this is? Okay, yeah, impossible. Died the other week. Anita Eckberg. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he... he talks about a conversation with John F. Kennedy, isn't he? Yeah. says, what does it take to make the country grow? Tell you, my friend John Marilyn Monroe, Anita Eckberg, country will grow. Sophia Loren. Yes. Okay. Now. No, no one will go. Fantastic. Oh, God. Saxophone. Old saxophone Joe. What's the next line? Uh, the old saxophone Joe. Nobody's got the hogshead up on his toe. What does that mean? What, what, if anybody knows what that means, I would love to know. That's, okay. that's Joe Henderson, the saxophone player. Not yes. Joe, Mr. Piano Henderson. It's saxophone Joe Henderson. Okay, anybody know who that is? Ezra Pound. Yeah. And T.S. Eliot were fighting in the captain's tower. Um, okay. Anybody know that? Those Two are for the price of one. Two for the price of one. Verlaine and Rambo. <laughs> What's the song? You're going to make me lonesome when you go. Is it? So it's, I think it's yeah. something like that. Isn't it? Okay, Andy Barrett, baseball. Okay. I know, I know, I know. This. <laughs> go on, Sid. Well, anybody like to have anybody knows that. Hey, there you go. Tell us about Catfish. Catfish Hunter, is that right? Yeah, Dil- Dylan in Chronicles. You realize, Chron- oh my God, this is something I should tell you. Uh, I have a story for the best Dylan story. This is something you might want to hear. Now, I don't know this was a fact, and Jeff Rose and his manager wouldn't cough up the goods. And I, I adore him, too. But 
Word has it that Dylan, one of my Sony legacy cronies in New York said, they asked Bob, we're going to put out these things. And what is it called? HC, HD or what is it? HD? Uh, HD audio, yeah. Barb knew. I, did, I didn't even know. Um, and we're going to put out your records again in this new CD format that has a greater sonic capability. Would you, Bob, like to like, write liner notes? And Dylan said, yes, and just great. And so we'll do the first 11 LPs, you know, up to, I think that's uh, New Morning, is it? So Dylan writes for all of them, but he comes up with, brace yourselves, gentlemen, you're, you're in the, the publishing game, 50,000 words for almost each CD book. <laughs> now, those of you that are in the graphic arts, what does this mean? Either the booklet or is this thick, or you're going to need a magnifying glass to read the liner notes. And what these guys, what a, a tattletale at Sony Legacy told me, and I have no idea if this is true, but it's worth repeating in such a crowd. They said that Chronicles is made up from the from yeah. a tone yeah. topped and tailed exactly. to the original story, wrong, yeah. but the stuff in the middle is is the CD booklets because Dylan wanted to use them. The CD booklet for what would be uh, well, it's oh Mercy, three records. It's um, New Morning, Oh Mercy, New Morning, exactly, and it would be um, Bob Dylan, the first record. Again, but, and then it's Dylan the CD decided, notes for those three yeah, things. So he gave it a little intro and he gave it the the ending bit. Now I have no idea if that's true, but I thought it was worth repeating. And this is how rumors start. <laughs> yes, but this is cat- catfish hunter. Catfish hunter. No longer with us, I think. That's that was, Dylan denies, if you look at Dylan's back catalogue, if you look at, read Chronicles, he denies liking sport. But I have friends that have seen him at Minnesota Timberwolves games. And why did they look at him? Because he looked like Bob Dylan? No, because it's a basketball team. It's an indoor arena. They've heated it, thank you very much. And he and his brother David, well, David probably doesn't, but Dylan has his hood up yeah. inside a basketball arena with it tied tight so you see sort of this much of his face. <laughs> And there's glasses. And of course, why, why would anybody not look at a guy who's wearing a parka inside at a basketball yeah. game? Anyway, this is, in my opinion, I'm taking a guess here. Dylan's, he mentions the Yankees several times. This is Catfish out of the New York Yankees. He was the dominant pitcher in baseball in, in the mid-1970s. And I have it on some authority that uh, it's Dylan's favorite team and that he used to go see this, these guys play all the time. And of course, everyone wants to do a Bob Dylan song. So who did he give the who got this song to record? Who put the first version out? Uh, close, Joe Cocker, the late Joe Cocker, the pride of Sheffield, sang a song about a North Carolinian who played baseball. It's worth hearing. I was reading. <laughs> it's worth hearing. I was reading today that the reason he was called Catfish was he turned up the first day of, of training and the. Coach looked at him and thought he was a good player, but he wasn't charismatic at all. He said, you're catfish. You need a name, yeah, yeah, you need a name. <laughs> Instantly. Uh, right, and anybody know who that is? Meg Garevers. The, the, the man killed in the, the, only a pawn in the game, I think that's right. Anybody know who that is? F, you've been through all of F. Scott Fitzgerald's well books. Lucy Keys. What song's that? Lucy Keys? Thing? Oh, I can't remember. The first song of modern down, times. Yeah. Uh, the first song of modern yeah. times. I just imagine how she must have felt when she heard that suddenly be on a box. And finally. Oh, this is brilliant. Oh, and, I'm guessing. No, that's wrong. The answer is Paul Revere's horse. <laughs> True. Paul Revere. What knowledge. <laughs> so there you go. That's the, give yourself a round of applause. Hey. For your performance in that. That little quiz. There's no prizes. We're, we're, we're going to finish soon because I realise you, you know you want to go and, and and keep pace with the you know the unfolding drama that is the transfer window. You know, <laughs> BBC Five Live have been desperately talking up all day today. But I just wanted to 
finish by saying, have you got a good Dylan story? I've got, I've got a nice one that Ken Dashow told me. Ken Dashow's a um, DJ, quite well-known DJ in, in New York, and, and he knows everybody and he's done everything, and he's got wealth of information about every single thing you could ever think of to do with American music. And he's a huge Dylan fan. And he goes to the Unplugged recording, and he, to- he told this story to me um, to illustrate something that we've been talking about all night, actually. So he goes to this unplugged and there's a curtain and he's standing by the curtain backstage and the crowd are waiting for Dylan to come and Dylan comes out and he sees Ken standing there and he, he stops and he says you're, you're a DJ right? And he, Ken can't believe it. He goes yeah I, I am. I am a huge fan. And Dylan says you know I, I love radio. I love radio and starts to talk to him about radio and how important radio is to him. Meanwhile, there's a curtain and there's an audience who've been sitting for a really long time and they've started to slow hand clap. They've started to slow hand clap. But Dylan appears not to hear them. He's talking to Ken about radio and it's really important. And he wants to convey what he knows about radio. And Ken's now in this terrible position because standing behind Dylan is the stage manager who's going stop we stop and Ken's Ken's going excuse me but can you can you hear he keeps trying and Dylan just doesn't he's not interested because he's in that moment with this story anyway finally the stage manager says look can you can you please and he says can we talk later can we uh, we're all going to go to a hotel later and I want to carry on talking to you about this and, and Ken can't believe his luck. He thinks, Dylan wants to talk to me about radio. So he watches the show and then, and then he goes to this party and sure enough, Dylan comes and they sit down and they talk for two, three hours about the importance of radio and the blues in America and all the things that are on theme time radio. And Ken, the whole time, is just in heaven. A <coughs> couple of years later, Ken interviews Robbie Robertson and he tells Robbie about this, and Robbie Robertson says, yeah, yeah, um, how did you feel, you know, in, in that? And, and Ken says, I felt like, you know, I really knew what Bob Dylan was, who he was. And Robbie says, yeah, you know him as well as I do. I worked with him for years, and I know him that well. And that's a really interesting story about the, the, the mystery of a person and, yeah. and how much you get of a person, and when you get it, that you feel you're getting everything, but actually you're getting the exact same that that person got and that person got, just at a different time in a different place. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's interesting. Interesting. Sid. Yeah. Well, I have... Ja- I'm going to... Ja- I have a million of them after being in the, the Dillon office to do that that work, but the one that really sticks with me is it's almost just a statement of fact, but I'll, I'll stretch it out just a wee bit, and it's, it takes a minute. A friend of mine, a lot of my friends, really obnoxious record collectors. I have one friend that had, that had in the old days of computers that printed out on green and white paper with, the, with the holes, perforated holes down the side, used to take around about an inch thick computer printout of all the R&B 45s and 78s he didn't have. Really, really obscure stuff. And this kind of crowd, one of the guys sent me, a, said, I know you love Dylan, like a very brief email in the early days of email. 
I want you to look at the covers of uh, Blonde on Blonde, front covers of Blonde on Blonde, John Wesley Harding, and Nashville Skyline. Really important. Uh, you know, when you've done this, I looked at them, and I looked at them, and I looked at them, you held them upside down. You've probably heard that the Beatles are, are drawn in the tree upside yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That wasn't it. I'm looking at them, I'm looking at them, I'm looking at them. And about every week, an email would come back. Did you look at the covers of Blonde on Blonde, John Wesley Harding, and Nashville Skyline? Now, remember what we said about Bob Dylan has no stylist, doesn't care. He's, this is George Harrison's he doesn't give a damn attitude. It's about three weeks of this goes on. Three or four emails come in on, every, on a Monday night, Sunday night, and finally the penny dropped. Ladies and gentlemen, on the cover, front cover, of Blonde on Blonde, John Wesley Harding, and Nashville Skyline, Bob Dylan is wearing the exact same jacket. You knew that. I've never met anybody that knew that fact before. Full marks, full marks. Take a bow. And I find that I find that amazing. Can you imagine? And I'm not putting these people down. Can you imagine, say, Beyonce or 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 uh, anybody or One Direction all having the same? Not not. This is years apart. When is Blonde on Blonde? The photograph was taken in I think February '66. And then the photograph for Nashville Skyline was taken in early January of of 69. Who wouldn't change their coat? (laughs) (laughs) Look, that's all we've got the time for, because I'm sure you want to go and have a drink. You've all got homes to go to. Would you please... uh, Thank you very much. You've been a terrific audience. Uh, Would you please say thank you to Sid Griffin and Barbie Younger? Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.